Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Everyone, welcome to the 95th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So this week, we will be deviating a little bit from our normal schedule to talk with Peter Lazaroff, Chief Investment Officer at PlanCorp. Peter joined PlanCorp in 2015 as a wealth manager, and in 2017, Peter became PlanCorp's Co-Chief Investment Officer uh, as well as owner of the firm. And then he became chief investment officer in 2020. Uh, Peter spends most of his time developing and communicating PlanCorp's investment strategy. And he also writes regularly for the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, and consistently writes his own blog, which we have discussed several times on the podcast before. So Peter, welcome to the show. Mark, Matt, thanks for having me, guys. I'm disappointed I'm not episode 100. I got to be honest, but <laughs> I've been listening to you guys for a while and uh, you do. I, I think this show is tremendous and you both do a great job. So really, really happy to be here. Hey, that's not out of the question yet. We've been talking behind the scenes of what exactly we're going to do for the 100th episode. So if this goes well enough, we might just ask you to come join us for the 100th episode. Even if you just find that I say one thing of value here today, you can just soundbite it and pretend. (laughs) Exactly. I love that. I love that. Um, So I guess just to kick things off, Peter, can you kind of start by telling listeners, you know, how you got started in the business? What led you to where you are today with PlanCorp? Sure. So coming out of school, I knew that I wanted to do something in stocks, which could mean a lot of different things, obviously. And when you're young and you're coming out of school, you just don't even really know what all the different roles are, or at least I didn't. And so I went to work for an independent uh, RIA in St. Louis, and it was relatively small and growing. I think I was employee maybe number 15, something like that. And I started as a trader and I did stock analysis and I did fund analysis and I did a lot of supporting work for the investment committee. And I shared a desk with our chief investment officer and shared a Bloomberg terminal, which for listeners who don't know what that is, just a big, big data center, super expensive. And so when you're a small firm, not everybody gets their own, you share them, uh, which Bloomberg doesn't like, but they make plenty of money. So anyways, um, I really, really enjoyed finance in general. It always felt like a puzzle that could be solved, like there was a right answer. And I was also a very cheap person. So I lived my life uh, really watching where every penny went, every investment went. The one thing that I was really fortunate early in my career, though, was that the chief investment officer, when I would go to him for projects, you know, I'd be done with trades for the day, done doing any sort of individual stock analysis. I say, now what? And he told me early on, go read something or go learn something. Like when you don't have anything to do, just find something new to learn and you'll probably end up being valuable. I said, okay. And I took a lot of notes uh, because otherwise I could not retain anything I was reading, reading all the papers, reading research papers, anything I could find. I remember there was a portfolio manager meeting and I don't remember what the topic was that came up, but there were a lot of questions. And I said, hey, well, like I have some notes on that topic. I'm happy to send them your way. And this was to the president of the firm. He said, sure, sure. Send them your way. Send them my way. And when I sent him the notes, he goes, these are great. Why do you have this? I said, well, I do it every day. I'm happy to send them to you every day. He goes, yes. At the end of the day, send me whatever it is you took notes on. And so then in the next portfolio manager meeting, 
he referenced Peter's daily notes, you know, has this, that, and the other. And everyone's like, well, what are these notes? And so I ended up distributing uh, what became Peter's, well, I think it's called afternoon review is what we called it. And mostly bullet points and links to stories. It's really just interpreting the news. It's a lot like what you guys honestly do on your podcast. There's the headline. There's not always the context that really matters to the end investors and how does it impact me? And there's a lot of that in bullet points. And as I kept doing it, but bullet points turned to sentences and sentences turned to paragraphs. And before you knew it, I was writing articles. And so in 2010, I was begging my firm then to start my own website. They said no, and they let me launch an email newsletter instead. And this was back when not every single person in the world seemingly had an email newsletter. But ultimately, uh, I started sending that out once a week. And that really grew quite a bit. And by the time I decided that I was ready to go to a firm that would let me have my own website, and I found PlanCorp. I went there. I had been working with clients and building my own book of business, but I went to PlanCorp ultimately to be their succession plan as chief investment officer. And so came and transitioned the clients I was working with. And I love working directly with clients, but I came to a firm where I felt like the average wealth manager, they just knew more about the comprehensive planning process than I did, whereas I was highly specialized in investing. And which has changed a little bit since I've gotten here. I feel like I've learned a lot more about personal finance and financial planning. But uh, came here, was director of investment research, now in chief investment officer. And I'm also part of a startup company called Bright Plan that provides corporate financial wellness. So it's kind of a company benefit where you're trying to provide wellness information and education. And really the writing though is what catapulted a lot of that. And so writing for me, what started as a process of learning ultimately became a platform for communicating with many. And my parents were doctors and my dad, um, part-time did some medical school teaching and I would do the rounds with him in the morning because I would wake up at 5 a.m. as a child. And he would always talk about the process in medical is that you see one, you do one, and then you teach one. And that's how you really learn. That's how doctors learn things. And it's interesting when we do training here at Plan Corp of Employees, we do that too. But the writing, that is my teach one. That's me teaching other people. And oftentimes when I'm writing, it's selfish. I'm just trying to learn something new and uh, hopefully simplify things for clients who have so much information coming at them from so many different angles with so many different agendas, just trying to like simplify it down to first principles and tell them what's important to them. Well, yeah, well, that's why, you know, I think that's why I personally connected with your blog so much is because, you know, like we talked about a little bit before we started recording here, you know, Matt and I's goal for, for this podcast is to simplify things for people, right? Because I think everyone has this a complex notion in their head that everything that has to do with their financial lives has to be completely complex and only a professional can do it. And that's simply just not the case, right? Um, so I think that's why, you know, I really enjoy your work is because anyone can pick up, you know, your blog and understand what you're trying to get across to them. Um, so, you know, I think there's going to be an interesting, interesting talk the rest of the way here. Yeah, Peter. I mean, one of my follow-ups for you is, can you just briefly describe your process for investing? Can you describe that to our viewers? Brief is going to be the challenge here, but I'm going to I do know. my best. I know. So I adopted a phrase that a lot of people use, um, evidence-based investing, in that the process should be driven by evidence. Now, we have an investment committee, and there's a lot of humans making decisions, and humans make bad choices. And you know, you, maybe you talk with your own clients, I know we certainly do, about the common biases that an individual will fall susceptible to on the investment front or a personal financial planning perspective. But the thing is, we're human too. 
So we have all these biases as well. And so how can you make, let the evidence dominate in a group decision-making process, which research shows really has a lot of flaw in it. When you get group decision-making, things go crazy. And so you know, our process starts as scientific as possible. If we have a portfolio, the starting point is always a market portfolio, an index portfolio. And, and we certainly have all index portfolios for some of our clients. We have a couple different strategies we run, but when you look at adding a new exposure, you're trying to figure out if this new exposure to a portfolio will help with minimal side effects. So you want to add something that has minimal side effects, kind of like when the FDA is approving a drug, you know, you want to do something that's going to help society with minimal side effects. But in trying to minimize that bad part of the side effects, sometimes you can fail to include something that might actually benefit the portfolio, uh, which is what people refer to as type one and type two error. But we're here to simplify things, not talk about statistics. You can't minimize one without the risk of the other going up. And so in general, I'm more concerned with implementing a bad idea than missing out on a good one. And so when you ask about our investment process, I, we lean heavily on data. We want to see a lot of certainty, but we recognize that with each additional exposure, there's a diminishing marginal benefit to that. And the degree of uncertainty, if it's high, you know, in each additional exposure is already not making that big of a difference beyond just a really boring index portfolio of stocks and bonds. So the evidence has to be really high. The evidence approach and this idea that for all you stack geeks, we're trying to minimize type one error by saying that we are trying to, we're more concerned with missing out, excuse me, we're more concerned about implementing a bad idea than missing out on a good one. And that defines so much of the process. And so when we think we're going to make a portfolio change in my tenure at PlanCorp, the average change has taken about two years at a time. And it's usually in the name of just lowering costs or making things more tax efficient. Our most recent change though is more behavioral in that the types of questions we were getting about statements made me think that we ought to combine a different set of funds to do the same thing. So the, the comparison I make is, let's say we're in the business of making chocolate cake. If you ever go to the grocery store and you've bought boxed cake, you know there'll be two different brands of boxed chocolate cake there. You look at the nutritional information and a slice of cake has the same amount of calories for both boxes, same amount of sugar. These have slightly different ingredients. Either way, we're making chocolate cake. One's just a little cheaper, maybe has a few less calories. Um, and, and that's all, but the optics so that the behaviors are the ones that we want. I think the incorporation of behaviors into the process has been exciting for me. I mean, I think it's something I dreamed of 10, 15 years ago, but now that I'm actually in charge of something, uh, pushing the money around, I get to, to implement it. So that's pretty cool. That was not brief. I'm sorry. I tried my best, Matt. <laughs> you did good, Peter. You did good. You know, it makes sense because you know ultimately what you're trying to do is be methodical about these decisions. You're not too quick to trade too much. And you're always thinking, hey, these incremental changes had consequences. Is this in the best interest of the client? Right? Absolutely. And I love what you first said. Like you're trying not to be quick and impulsive. If you're making lots and lots and lots of changes, you're going to lose. It's kind of like if you have, to, if we assume it's like flipping a coin, I got a 50, 50 chance of being right the first time. If I have to flip a coin twice, the chance of me being right two times in a row is now 25%. If I flip it three times, it's now 12 and a half percent, four times, you know, it keeps having down. If we, the more decisions we make, the more trades you make, the more times you, op, you, introduce the opportunity for error. And in my opinion, you know, financial success is mostly about minimizing mistakes and finding the way to best leverage compounding, whether that's truly compounding in your portfolio or compounding somewhere in your life. It's a huge benefit. And a lot of people, if an idea is good today, 
and you're really a long-term investor, which I would love everyone to adopt being 20 years, but realistically, I know clients have a hard time living through 10 years of something. If, if you are in a hurry to invest in something because it's going up, if you're really an investor for 20 years, you should like it just as much a year from now, no matter where the price is. And I think that's one of the things that happens is whether it's something like cryptocurrency, which has been in the news more and people don't want to miss out on that, or maybe there's a part of their portfolio they don't like, like international, or if you're a value investor, you'd have the right to be upset with value investing over the past decade. Look at a 20-year period and financial theory tends to work pretty darn well. It's just that the eternity, excuse me, the long-term is an eternity to live through in the moment. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's one of the things that we've talked about on the podcast before. I believe this was from like Ben Carlson that he wrote a blog post on it. But if you look at the S&P 500, 20 year rolling returns, every 20 year period, the market has never been down. Right. Um, But I think that us today, we're all uh, so quick for gratification. Like we want that instant gratification. And it's hard for people to look past. I mean, just think back to March, it was hard for people to look past the next day. Right. Um, and, you know, we were out there pounding the table on, you know, hey, we got to ride this through. This is a part of the process. We fully expect corrections like this to happen. Um, maybe you didn't expect it this quick, but we did expect pullbacks like this. And it doesn't help when, you know, CNBC has a markets in turmoil presentation going for two months straight that people are freaking out, right? <laughs> it totally. And, and I know this, having listened to you guys for a while now, that, it's hard when you're in a role like ours where we're trying to help people make smart decisions with their money, right? And they come to us with this negative headline or this scary thing. And when you brush it off and you say, well, that's, that's not that big a deal long-term, it almost look, makes you look silly if you're an optimist. You know, so being yes. pessimistic, and Morgan Housel talks a lot about this, how pessimism looks really smart. And it's, you can make a very well-crafted, scary thesis, but in the end when you're investing in stocks, it's a bet on capitalism. It's a bet on the human spirit. It's a bet on human ingenuity. And you either believe or you don't. And all those really, really painful times, well, that's just the cost of higher expected returns. Our job is not necessarily as advisors, in my opinion, it's not necessarily to be smarter than everybody. It's just to be like a behavioral babysitter, remind people of why we're doing this in the first place. You know, we're not investing to hit, to have 10 X returns. We're investing just to beat inflation. That's not even that high of a bar, you know, especially if you're in stocks, that's not that high of a bar. Um, Maybe stocks earn less in years of it, of higher inflation, but on average stocks earn almost 7% above inflation over the long run. You just have to deal with all the volatility and uncertainty in the process. That is the cost to you as an investor for the really, really nice return you get for being a patient, boring investor. And that's, I think what a lot of people don't realize is our job often just comes down to that reminding people, getting them to stay the course we're the robots who can't show emotion yet. I don't know about you guys with my own investments. I, I had to move to just a single mutual fund that's globally diversified and basically does everything for me because I'm human too. I'll mess it around with my portfolio and tinker if I don't take it out of my own hands. So when you hire an advisor, you can't tinker. You're gatekeepers to your long-term well-being. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I say. I talk about that all the time that I'm like, I'm, I'm emotional with my own money, but hiring that advisor and 
you know, I hate to come off as, you know, just because we're in this industry, I'm saying, hey, go work with someone. It's really, I'm not saying that just because I'm an advisor. It's, it's nice having someone that doesn't have an emotional tie to money because money is just about the most emotional thing that people can get about, right? And get all up in arms about. So even if you don't hire an, an, an uh, advisor, I would recommend having an investment buddy or just a, a friend that can keep you, you know, on your path and follow your plan because, when time gets rough, you know, that's when people deviate from the plan, but you put the plan in place to deal with tough times like we dealt with in March of 2020. So. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, obviously we're all self-serving saying you should have an advisor. You can go get a cheap option. I mean, there's robo advisors out there for 25 basis points or a quarter of a percent. Now you don't get the same experience. They don't know your personal tax situation. If you have a personal advisor, those advisors churn and have turnover you know, they're, they're young, the systems are built so that they graduate from their book of business and go to serve a totally new set of clients every couple of years. They're not going to know the right advice for you at all the time. You know, you get what you pay for. So if you need someone to be, give you rebalancing that has no consideration for your taxes. And I say this having, you know, I mentioned the startup I'm in, it is also a robo advisor. So I'm kind of railing on it too. There's just a difference when you have a human there who knows you, um, who can do financial planning, who can help minimize taxes, who can help you with your estate plan, who can talk you through things. You earn a lifetime of fees in a single bear market oftentimes, or just right. preventing people from making one investment mistake. But the market rate for what's super cheap and not that much value add other than rebalancing tax loss harvesting, that's been set. Um, it, at a minimum, people should do that. And it's wonderful that that's even an option. It's kind of serving a marketplace that otherwise wouldn't have access to advisors like you all or myself you know, they'd be forced to go some other route that doesn't necessarily have their best interest in them. Yeah. Yeah. Peter, what comes to mind when you were talking about that is kind of last February and March when you had intraday movements of the market on some days were upwards of double digits. Does it really matter if that advisor is charging one or one and a half percent at that point? Right. Absolutely. And so, you know, I think that what happens at times is um, individuals get caught up in the minutia of, well, you know, this investment vehicle or advisor, whatever it may be is 1% and this other one is, is 0.8, this other one's 1.5. And all of a sudden, when you go through periods of stress in the market, Peter, and, and you see these drastic intraday movements, and all of a sudden it puts that, in my view, into context that the fees aren't really the motivational factor. It's really the advice and the guidance that you're getting. Yeah. And do you trust that person giving you advice? Exactly. Trusting a robot is a little bit harder. It just is. I've seen it firsthand given working for a second company that runs a robot. The trust level in a robot's different. Um, that it robot, is. you know, your life cannot be simplified down to an algorithm. It's just right. not possible. Well, yeah. one thing I say, and I'll be curious um, what you what your response is. I tell people, you know, the, the robo-advisors are only as good as the people programming it. You agree yeah. or disagree? I do agree. So as context, again, I keep mentioning BrightPlan. So BrightPlan, we originally built as a separate company to compete with the big robo-players and then yep. realized that there was a need in corporate financial wellness that we pivoted. And so, yeah, we we spent, I spent a year plus taking everything I knew about trading and investing and trying to put it into trade rules, but there were still limitations because there are so like, if you think of a decision tree, just a simple yes, no decision tree for a basic trade could end up having 16 branches and you still haven't even covered it all. And so 
the robo advisors, again, there is a, if you don't have enough assets to meet a firm's minimum, it is way better to go to a robo advisor than to try to do it yourself. I mean, you can throw it in like a Vanguard lifestyle, life strategy fund. That's not a terrible solution. You know, they have like an 80, 20, and a 60, 40, and 40, 60, et cetera. I think the robo advisors honestly replaced a big part of the market that was taking advantage of people that were that size. And so to me, they are definitely a societal benefit. And I think they've also pushed firms like ours to adopt technology. And so now our clients can log into an app and see some stuff that they couldn't see before. So they, they've definitely been a benefit. And I think that they are just forcing all advisors to add more value beyond investing. So either way, I see this all as a win for the end investor. Where What advice will look like a decade from now, most people assume it's going to go somewhere closer to what looks like life coaching. I don't know if that's true or not. That's just what people smarter than me that study this stuff say. But I definitely feel like the tie, when you have a relationship with somebody, it's a relationship and trust business. You know, I want to be any of our clients' first call if there is something going on. Um, and because we have such an intimate knowledge of their lives, it really makes sense. We're sitting in that right seat. And I also think of our best advisors they weren't necessarily finance majors. I mean, there's sociology majors, biology majors. Um, it's someone who who specialized. It's not in retail, but it was something like, or it's hospitality, hospitality. So, you know, there are all these functions where what you're really trying to accomplish is this behavioral babysitter concept. And you're trying to understand somebody's financial life, get their whole financial house in order and keep it that way forever. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. So I kind of transitioning, I think that's a good transition point for the next topic, uh, Peter, is that, you know, your formal title is chief investment officer, but several of your blog posts, um, obviously that we've talked about before on our show, um, you know, they're centered around financial planning topics. So what is the purpose behind this? You know, why did you start writing on financial planning instead of, you know, investment allocations? So when I changed firms, I had been writing almost exclusively about investments and exclusively within the context of what was happening in the markets at that moment in time. And it, it, it's kind of a rat race. You're on a, a little hamster wheel when you're doing that. There's always something new. I decided I wanted to pivot to more evergreen topics that could last forever. So you could read an article today or you could read it five years from now, it would still be impactful. And with investing, I ran out of topics that you could do that with. And so I pivoted a little bit to financial planning. Then I wrote my book and my book, I was going to do all investments, but I felt like I had to set the stage. I said, you know, I can't write about these investments if people don't understand the way to set the goals for them or understand these important concepts. And it turned out I sat down the first day. I, I mean, I didn't intentionally sit down to write a book, but I had like 5,000 words. And I go, oh my gosh, I should probably write a book then. Just trying to intro the investments and it was all planning. And as I went through the process of writing the book, I kept writing about planning. And so I did go on a real big streak there of planning writing. More recently, I've pivoted back a little bit to investments, but I still find myself talking about what's in the news, whether it's inflation expectations, or I think last week I did Bitcoin. I have some stuff that's a little more timeless but one of the things, my, one of my favorite writers is Jason Zweig of the Wall Street Journal. And he used to joke that he basically writes the same 12 articles hundreds of times. And I see it. I totally get it. And I see it. And it's hard to do with investing. So even though I'm chief investment officer, that is definitely my specialty. And when I write about a financial planning topic, you have to remember one, I'm, I am a CFP and 
Two, I used to be a wealth manager, work at clients. And three, I work at a firm that only did financial planning for the first decade of existence. So I'm surrounded by planners and I'm in meetings and I hear topics and I go through this stuff myself. So it's really a matter of if I hear questions coming up from clients more often, that tends to drive what I write. If I thought people would care, I would probably write more about decision-making though. So at some point, my role would suggest that I'm doing a lot with decision-making, which is true. I don't know that our clients or the people that follow me on our blog would care about decision-making theory um, and the behavior aspects. They might like once or twice, but then when you really get in the minutia, I think they would tune out. So how can I help people? How can I reach an audience and give them educational advice that makes them in a better financial mindset than they were before? And oftentimes that's not with investing because most investing, the answer should just be no and do nothing the actionable things, people want action. That's a place with financial planning, you can take action and not be harmful. So investing action is bad. Financial planning action is good. And in the end, if you can automate all that action and non-action, then you really got something going. You know, you almost answered my next question, Peter, perfectly, which are what's up, what are some areas of financial planning that do not get enough attention in the media, but really move the needle for people. And I think you just highlighted in the last let's say 120 seconds, three or four of those. Is there anything else, Peter, you'd like to add to that, that things that could really move the needle that it just aren't talked enough about? At the end of the day, a really good savings rate can cover up a lot of bad money decisions. Yes, yeah. Mark talks about that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's not covered because it's, it's hard to get a click saying save more. Click, you can get a click saying, find these ways, like these eight simple ways to save more. And believe me, I've written that type of article at least once, um, if, not, if not multiple times. Ultimately, the way you grow wealth is you invest or you have a longer horizon or you spend less than you earn. You find a way to spend less or earn more. And, and more likely we end up earning, you know, more people go for the earn more button than the spend less button. It really is simple, as simple as that, but that's just not sexy enough to garner headlines. So it's not covered as frequently. You want to find tax savings. You want to find everyone wants a shortcut. There's no shortcut. It's all hard. We all work for a very, very long time. And uh, hopefully we saved away some stuff so that we can stop working at some point or at least have the freedom to choose to work if we want to work or choose not to work if we don't want to work. Yeah, exactly. And that's, uh, yeah, Matt said it too, but the two biggest levers that I think people have are your savings rate or, you know, the income that you earn, you know, it's not going to do you good to not go get your, you know, Starbucks latte every other day. If that's what makes you happy. I read, um, uh, Ramit Satis book. I don't know if you're familiar with his work. Um, I'll Absolutely. teach you to be rich. And, yes. um, the thing that connected with me, with his, with his work was, you know, spend money on things you love. So, you know, if that Starbucks latte makes you happy every day, then go do it. You know, that's not the, the three or $4 latte is not going to make the big changes by not spending it. It's increased your savings rate from, you know, 5% of your income to eventually over a period of years, 15 or 20% of your income, or, you know, go get a job that pays you 10, 15, $20,000 more per year. So you don't have to worry about the minutia of, of your budget. So I agree with that, Mark. And Matt, you know, now that I think more about like what's not being covered, there was an article I wrote in the process of writing the book in like 2017 or 18, whenever that was. And 
it occurred to me that we all talk about how to save more, but we don't write that much on how to spend effectively. And there's one book I love. It's called Happy Money, The Science of Happier Spending. Um, it's Elizabeth Dunn and somebody else. I'm sorry, maybe, oh, sorry, whoever the second author is. It's um, on my list and I, I know it's Elizabeth Dunn and I can't remember who the second one I want to say either, Norton but... is the second name. Yeah, but the, you know, the, we spend so much time focused on how to save and save more, but we often don't have our pri- priorities aligned with what would generate the most happiness when we spend. So experiences, our research have shown, tend to have more lasting experience, uh, or excuse me, more lasting happiness than a, than a consumption purchase or purchases that create time or uh, gifting money I know or finding ways to make it a treat. And there's a lot of research out there. I think that probably would be a very interesting future book if I ever had the stamina for another. <laughs> I will say, I, as point, I hesitate, I know there's a different idea in the hopper. And so, but I think the idea in the hopper would have to go before that one. But I also am not sure that I have spousal approval to write another book. It was a big undertaking. So you don't want to <laughs> necessarily do that. Yes. We we're both married. We get it. Yep. We get it. Um, so, you know, another thing that we kind of talked about, you know, briefly before we started recording, uh, Peter was that, you know, we're big proponents of keeping things as simple as possible when it comes to financial planning. So, you know, what are some ways that you think people can simplify their financial lives and still have a meaningful impact on, on their finances? I think automation is the key and not everything can be automated, but you want to make a bunch of really good decisions and then not have to think about it. So budgeting, for example, it's great to budget because then you're very aware of where expenses are. You don't budget so that you save more money. You budget so that you're aware. It's kind of like, why do you count calories? You you don't count calories. You can count calories to lose weight. Don't get me wrong. But you also, when you count calories, you're just aware of what's going in your body. And when you spend and you don't really know, you have a rough idea of how much you save, but you really don't know where your money's going. I track expenses just to have a sense of it all. But the thing is budgeting is real pain. And most people are not weird like me and tracking their expenses every day. Uh, so yeah. how can you automate that process and be more intentional? And so I, I've always kind of focused on what I call reverse budgeting, where you set a couple goal, a, a handful of goals for five years or less, and you can have some long-term ones that I can get into later, but those five-year or less goals, you set an expected date and expected cost, and you sum all those up and you divide by 60 months, which is five years. And then you know how much you have to save. And then you literally don't have to budget anymore. And you can put it on autopilot and you don't have to think about anything once you've made these series of super intentional choices and then you automate it. Now, it's been a while since I looked up the definition of automate, but I'm pretty sure if I remember correctly, although maybe my brain just wants me to think this, that automate is not necessarily technology, which is what we all think. So going back to when you hire an advisor, you are automating because you have implemented a system or process that does it for you. And how do you simplify your, your finances? You automate as much as possible. You can do that alone. You can do it with help. I mean, somebody mows my lawn. I can mow my lawn. I'm very capable. I used to mow my lawn. Uh, then I started paying somebody 30 bucks a week to mow my lawn and the lawn started looking better and healthier. And you know, there'd be Saturdays where I'd want to go play golf and I didn't check the weather forecast thinking, oh, I'll just cut the grass on Sunday and it ends up raining and they get super long and I'm working all week and I got all this long grass and it takes me forever to cut and it's probably not as healthy. Been there, done that. 
Yeah. When I hire somebody, that never happens. That never, it's never happened. Uh, I, it's little stuff like that. Like, I know I can do it, but if I can find a way to make a choice where I don't have to think about it, that's simplifying my life. And then I have more time. We think about lasting happiness. That's a purchase, purchasing that service, whether it's the lawnmower or the people who come to clean our house every other week um, or our advisor. I've, I've actually hired an advisor because I think it's helpful to have an objective third-party voice uh, you know, with my wife and I. And it's not like I don't understand these things, but it's, it's again, helpful to have a sounding board. Anytime you hire somebody to create some time, that's making life simpler. And, and honestly, it's finance is just not that complicated. It's not rocket science. If you're smart, you could spend all the time to find all the answers and get it all right. But just like mowing my lawn, like I know how to mow my lawn, but my time is better used elsewhere at this point. Yeah. And I, th- I think that that's, you know, that's hard for people to understand because I think they, people want to do it by themselves and they want to pick stocks by themselves because they think it's, you know, sexy and sophisticated and all that, because that's what all of the clickbait articles on it's check out this, you know, uh, digital currency last year that did 1300%. Your know? neighbor tells you about this stock. Right. So I think on the outset, you know, with the media in general and and the finance industry, they portray it to be a lot easier than it is until someone gets into it and is doing it themselves. And they're like, wow, I definitely don't want to do this. So you outsource it. And like you said, you know, free up their time because the majority amount of our clients don't want to worry about this stuff in retirement. They want to do the stuff they want to do. They want to travel. They want to hang out with their grandkids. They want to go spend time at, at a vacation home or they want to go spend two months in Arizona, they don't want to have to be worrying about making adjustments or rebalancing their portfolio or figuring out how much they can take out of their accounts every month to help supplement their living expenses in retirement. And that's why they outsource it to a third party. I just brought this up last week after I was talking about one of your articles is that, you know, if I was ever in a bind, which I hope I'm not, I would not represent myself in court because I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't want to spend the time to learn how to represent myself. So I would hire a professional who has done it for a long time. Right. So it's no different than that conversation, I think. Yeah. I sprained my ankle uh, in November and we're recording this at the end of April and it's still, my ankle's still messed up. Now I did eventually go see a doctor, but at first I was just, you know, I Googled it. Okay. Just elevate it and ice it and compress it and stay off it. No, that was, turns out I needed to have a boot and it didn't seem like I had to have, you know, like, people it's like you wouldn't perform brain surgery on yourself well yeah duh but like here's something that's like an everyday like i rolled my ankle playing with my kids i just thought i rolled my ankle and it was bad and i googled it and i found an answer and it was the correct answer but you don't know it you don't know um and here's something as simple yes the you would never argue well i would never argue a case in court for myself even if i was a lawyer i think that's a great example it's just wall street in the media frames investing in finance as if you can do it yourself. And I just said, it's not rocket science. Anybody listening to this podcast obviously has an interest in finance to some extent. So you could obviously spend a lot of time and find the answers. Where we have the benefit is a career worth of learning moments from others, from real life situations that we're specialists. So like, yes, you know, you could learn some of the things we know on Google, but it's going to take time to really become a professional. There's a difference between the professional side and the amateur side. And even the best amateurs who come to us, I'm always impressed when we have a prospective client come and they know about all these different tech strategies and they have their, they have their finances super organized. 
we always still find a hole though. I mean, there's always something and it's just, it's hard to know. That's, that's what I, that's what being a professional is all about. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I completely agree. Yeah. And with that learning process, Peter, there'd be a lot of mistakes made along the way that they might not be able to recover from. That's right. One expensive mistake. It's all it takes. Right. You only buy a house so many times you only, you know, need your insurance policy, hopefully never, but so many times, you know, you like you it's yeah, they're big numbers. The little mistakes, like we said, good savings rate covers them up. The big, big, big cash flows sell selling out of the market when the market's down, you know, all those things you just can't come back from. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Peter, uh, we don't want to take too much more of your time, but you know, when, where can people go to follow your work if they want to, you know, read your blog posts or your articles uh, that you've written in the past? Sure. Well, it's, if you can spell Lazaroff, uh, that's surprising, but you can Google Peter Lazaroff and Google's smart enough that it'll probably send you to peterlazaroff.com where basically everything I do, whether it's at Wall Street Journal or Forbes or even interviews like this, they, they all end up on my website. So peterlazaroff.com is the website. All my social media handler, handles are at Peter Lazaroff. I can't swear that I'm super interesting on social media, but would love to follow regardless. Um, yeah. And then the book, I keep saying the book, the book is called making money simple. If you want to read, you know, my philosophy for multiple hours, uh, you can go to Amazon or any bookstore and get making money simple, the complete guide to getting your financial house in order and keeping it that way forever. Yep. And it's definitely, it's on my list. I have a list of like 50 books that I want to read and and yours is on it. So hopefully uh, we can have you back on again. Um, because I think quite frankly, you'd be great at having your own podcast, but we'd be delighted if you'd come back on again. And if you have specific topics you want to discuss, I think, um, you know, if you're thinking about it, then other people are thinking about it as well. So don't hesitate to to shoot us a message and say, Hey guys, I think I could uh, make for a good episode again. I would love to be back. Uh, thank you both for having me today. It's fun. Very impressed, Peter. Thank you for your time. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening in to the 95th episode of the Independent Advisors podcast. We will be back with you next week for episode 96. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved.
achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.